alchemy, sorcery, and treachery. Uncover the mysteries of the Magus of Mort Lake as we discuss Dr. John D. next on Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Madness and magic. Welcome to Monsters and Madness and Magic, the Monastery of the Macabre and Sanctuary of the Strange, where we highlight all things horror and take deep dives into occult oriented histories and conspiracy culture. I'm Justin. I'm David. I'm Jason. And you can find us and our other associates on MonstersMadisonMagic.com. You can find us on YouTube at MonstersMadisonMagic, Facebook as well, Instagram, and on Twitter. You can now also listen to the show on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, or your, your podcasting app of choice. And once again, we want to thank Daniel Edenfield of The Night Keep for providing the music. And you can find The Night Keep along with his other projects on Bandcamp. And before we dive in, we want to acknowledge our sources for the episode. John D. and the Empire of the Angels by Jason Louvre and The Queen's Conjurer by Benjamin Woolley. But before we dive into D. himself, I think we should uh, start with how we came to this information about the Enochian sessions and all his dealings with Edward Kelly in the first place, which is uh, an interesting tale in itself. London. 1642. Confectioner Robert Jones travels with his wife Susanna to a general store across town. In that shop, the couple spies an ornate wooden box that seemed to call to them to purchase it. The chest then remained with the couple undisturbed in their home for two decades. In 1662, while moving the chest, Robert heard a curious clattering from within. Interesting. From within. <laughs> When Mr. Jones went to investigate, he discovered that the chest contained a small space at the base. He uh, popped it open with his knife, and inside he found yellowed pages and a smaller box that stored a wooden cross. Jones himself couldn't make no sense of the writings, which were uh, later discovered to be Latin, bearing titles such as the 48 Angelic Keys. Oh. Mm -hmm. The book was, uh, the manuscript was filled with odd glyphs and strange tables, and uh, Jones decided to place the tables back in their tomb rather than mess with them any further, which I'd probably do the same. Yeah, me too. 
<laughs> a few days later, their maid discovered the pages, and she thought they would do well for kindling for the fire. And by the time Robert made it back and found the maid, she had nearly burned half the contents of the box. Damn. Guarantee she got fired. Yeah, definitely fired. And we'll never... So even the amount of information we have now, which is a good bit, there's so there's more missing, which is frustrating. The ones that did not burn, however, were placed inside the chest and forgotten. Two years later, in the Great Fire of London, Mrs. Jones gathered what she could from the home and fled. She removed the remaining pages and went on to remarry one Thomas. No Thomas. Thomas, Thomas Whale. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Wale. <laughs> Thomas <laughs> cannot read Latin. <laughs> now Thomas cannot read Latin himself, but he knew that he was dealing with some dealing with some shit here. <laughs> some yeah. bad shit. Yeah, he knew he had his hands on something. So this is when the documents finally came across the desk of Elias Ashmole. Astrologist, alchemist, and antiquarian. And now, I've been, you say uh, antiquarian. Yeah. Could you explain to me uh, a little bit what an antiquarian is? Collector of old things. Oh. A creepy old guy, you know, just collecting artifacts and. From I might have to go into that title of work, <laughs> stuff, as I appreciate a few of the old things. Yeah, just throw it on there. I mean, who cares? You're an antiquarian now. I knight you. Thank you, sir. You're a podcaster and antiquarian. There's no antiquarian degree. We're all good. We're all antiquarians now. Let's all do it. I feel so refined. (laughs) Antiquarian. So if we ever go anywhere, be sure to put that in any information that... You put us in that uh, we're antiquarian. <laughs> All three. It also sounds like we could belong to some secret uh, ocean civilization. Antiquarian. <laughs> yeah. I'm an, like an aquarian. <laughs> I like the sound of that. <laughs> now, O Elias, he's also considered one, he's also one of the earliest documented Freemasons. There's Tales that float around about him being the first one. And he dipped his hands in alchemy. And I've also been mispronouncing his name today as Elias Asmole. <laughs> you're, you're not serious, are you? <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> you know, if you say it too fast, you know, Elias Asmole, Elias Asmole, yeah. Elias Asmole. You know, eventually you'll get, you'll get there. I thought, you, I thought you called him Elias Ashmole, though. His name is Ashmole. I've been accidentally calling him Asmole. Oh, I, I, I hadn't even noticed. <laughs> well, I haven't done it this podcast. I've just I've done it, you know, throughout the day. I, oh, I just, oh, I'm pointing out that I've been doing it. <laughs> okay, so Ashmole revealed that these were the remnants of the Libra Mysterium. The Book of Mysteries of John D. Needless to say, Ashmole was beside was bes- Ashmole was beside himself. <laughs> he has spent years searching for Doctor D's work. 
Thomas Woodall, the original owner of the chest, was the son of John Woodall, the last known custodian of Dee's estate. Ah, so he saw something he liked, and he, uh, when no one was looking, he just took it out of there. Yeah, he's probably, you know, I John kept ridiculous records. He, this is probably important stuff. He's been seeing for years. Old John been storing his things there for a long time. Right. Why better take this thing? This old box, huh? Yeah, yeah just for him. Just a box. Nothing inside yeah. at all. To everyone but him. <laughs> so the reason we know anything about the sessions with Kelly and the contents of those discussions is because some of those papers survived the flames of London and the hearth of Robert Jones and landed in the hands of Elias Asmol. Yeah. <laughs> well, now with that, uh, with the tale of the diaries out of the way, let's get into the man himself. John D., mathematician, occultist, philosopher, alchemist, and court magician, was born in Tower Ward, London, to Roland D. That's a name. It is. And Joanna Wilde on July 13th, 1527. Those are both some names. Guarantee they had some wild fucking going on. <laughs> goddamn cheap. I mean, they produced, they produced quite an individual, I'd say so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the interesting thing about Dee's birth is there are zero records of it. The only reason we know his birth date is because of a piece of parchment found among his papers that showed a series of signs, numbers, and symbols sketched out. D drew a, a detailed horoscope of his own birth in the manner of the ancients. So yeah, we're talking this man took he documented everything. And those star maps, those star maps are accurate more so than a clock made by our human hands. Those star maps are putting like precise times over locations because you can wind back on solar models wind those back and watch those years click back and see where those planets would be visible on that point where he was born during that time you can Mm -hmm. find the hour right accurate so basically what we're saying is uh next time your crazy wine aunt that likes essential oils and horoscopes starts rambling on you can just tell her to read some john d and uh, eat a dick (laughs) (laughs) now from an early age john's father served in the court of henry the eighth king of england he was a mercer in uh now, he wasn't clothing Henry or anything. He most likely just maintained the fabric of the palace and the subjects of the king. So, you know, he had some... He was in there, but he wasn't He wasn't shaking hands with Henry or anything. But early on, this exposed Dee to a lot, a lot of uh, dealings in the court and a lot of important people. And this just set the tone for the rest of his life. Now, another cool thing about Dee, but not true, is he claims descent from Rodri the Great, Prince of Wales who was uh, the master of Wales in the late 9th century and defended the Welsh from Viking attacks before uh, eventually succumbing in battle. But the date is disputed. But like I said, cool but not true. Right. (laughs) A lot of things back in the day were just speculation. Yeah, or, you know, you could just, there's no internet, you just add flair, you know. 
Yeah, just talk it up, literally. And any, nobody else can tell the tale. Right, and he's a smart guy. He made a, he even made a little cool, intricate family chart, tracing it back. So you know, it looked legit. LRH magic. <laughs> you could get away with anything as long as the people around you are dumb. Right. <laughs> you just look for the weakest link, and you're like, I, I got to fool that guy. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Keys to success here, gentlemen. <laughs> this brings us to 1547. 19-year-old John D. is enrolled at Trinity College, Cambridge, studying Greek. This is the first event of D.'s life that would set him on a magical path and not really in a positive light. D. was chosen to direct the stage production of the Greek comedy Peace by Aristophanes. <laughs> in the play, the protagonist, Trigeus, must uh, reach Zeus's palace and... Uh, Trigeus calls forth his flying companion to carry him up the slope of Mount Olympus. And this is a reference to an older story, and this is a parody. So in the original stories, Pegasus appears. You know, you have this majestic Grace flying horse. horse. Yeah, right. And, uh, but in this comedy, there's a, a giant scarab beetle that appears and takes <laughs> him on a trip over the landscape, and it's real scary for him. So, yeah. A giant beetle. Yeah, it's a, it's a dung beetle. <laughs> That's the joke. Everybody's just laughing. They're like, it's poo, it's poo. <laughs> uh, so, but for D, it was the mathematics and not the magic that held the answer to conjuring the beetle to life on stage. He was, he wanted, this was his, uh, you know, he's a young, smart guy. He's at school. He gets to do this production of this play. He wants to kill it. So he's really thinking, you know, I can, I can make a fake beetle and I can make it fly, or make it look like it's flying. His mathematical uh, preface to Euclid's Element, his most influential work and contribution to availability and advancement of mathematics, dereferences the engineering feats of past thinkers, and one of his major influences is Roger Bacon, and he uh, references something, uh, the brazen head of Bacon, which. Uh, was just uh, some sort of mechanical head that seemed to move and talk on its own. I'm sure that freaked people out because Roger Bacon was uh, accused of sorcery too back in his day. Man, back in this day, fucking theater nerds were badass. When I was in when I was in high school, it was just all fat chicks and dudes with acne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he was killing it. So um, on the day of the performance. The guy that was playing Trigius mounted the beetle, and the beetle actually took flight. I don't say the crowd was gasping in wonders. Um, D hinted at how he did this in some of his writing with the use of mirrors, pulleys, and springs, but like a true magician, he never truly revealed how he pulled off the illusion. And the mysterious nature of uh, these events were, this is how the tales of black magic began to spawn associated with the and he started to become labeled as a black magician from this point on. At least in England. That was the stigma that stuck with him. Okay, so before we get into his time with Elizabeth and his eventual pairing with Edward Kelly, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> there's a lot going on in these life 
a little there's so many years before D's life and when he's coming into his own in court, he's uh there's some events that are shaping the current political landscape. We have the invention of the printing printing press in fourteen forty and the fall of Constantinople to Islam in fourteen fifty three. Of course with the invention of the printing press, you're able to now print the Bible and now you don't have to what? go to church. And listen to. Basically, this is all around when the Catholic Church's power just started to just crumble. disappear, crumble. Yeah. Right. And you have the scholars fleeing from Constantinople from Islam in 1443, carrying all these Latin and Greek texts that have essentially been lost to Europe all this time. And this is the birth of the Renaissance. And the birth of the Protestant Reformation. And then event, finally in 1534, Henry just says, fuck it, and splits with the church and names himself head of the Church of England, and here we are. That's a Chad move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chad move. Chad move indeed. The Chad Henry, the virgin pope. <laughs> that actually works. That Dude, holy shit, that works. God damn. <laughs> so in the the years after college d would travel continental europe and develop correspondences that he would maintain throughout his life and while he was traveling he was exposed to many occult schools of thought hermeticism kabbalah ideas set forth by cornelius agrippa episode one we're fast forward into 1555. This is the height of the tensions between Bloody Mary and Elizabeth. And Charlie, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain. Charlie V. Charlie V. <laughs> Charlie V. Charlie V. Charlie V. After Mary and Philip of Spain, that's the son of Charlie Five, they got married. Charlie Five Jr. (laughs) (laughs) And Mary is telling everybody, you know, it's okay, I'm pregnant. It's okay, I'm pregnant. I got a child. And the problem is if Mary dies and she doesn't have an heir, then the Catholic Church loses the power. It's during this time that she's uh, trying to conceive that uh, Elizabeth approaches John D. And ask him to cast her horoscope. Yeah. She wants to learn. Yeah, she's trying to learn. And she's interested in his findings, of course. These respected at this point. The only problem is he was discovered and arrested for calculating and conspiring against the crown. You know, John D was just sitting there like, oh, uh, oh yeah, I did that. Just <laughs> up. I'm Don't fucking fuck awesome. <laughs> So this terrified Mary, and uh, Dee was all but forced to confess to the crime of calculation, and this sprouted the vines that there was a vast occult network of conspirators that existed to bring the Queen's rule to an end, which was led by Dee. Who knows? Sounds sounds legit to me. (laughs) Knowing what we know now, (laughs) it sounds legit to me as well. D sounded pretty sneaky down the road. Yeah, he was a spy, so don't underestimate this man. 
This man was sneaky. Could it of all could all the madness to come be an elaborate ruse or could Maybe it's, it's all code for something that we can't understand because we're stupid. Mm-hmm. It was a code made up for him and Elizabeth. Someone else to see. Very interesting take. Hot takes. So the D was taken to the Tower of London. That's not that's never good. <laughs> and he was charged with treason. The tower. Uh, of course, he was. One see, does what one has to do. Back then, it, it like it was just like it is today. If some hippie chick ever comes up and asks you to cast her horoscope or tell you her horoscope, you run the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap. John, you, John, you fucked up. <laughs> Never stick your dick in crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> D was released into the supervision of Bishop Edmund Bonner. Now, this is where John does a little bit to try to help his public Im- image because it just so happens that the bishop is writing a uh, book condemning magical feats and folk rituals, which D just happened to be accused of. <laughs> uh- Wonderful. So immediately Dee's like, hey, I'll help you write that. And this is where we see uh, Dee uses this time with Bonner to expand his own personal library, which is quite substantial already. And uh, this is where he seriously considers and begins to study alchemy and specifically the philosophy and teachings of 13th century thinker Roger Bacon, who was also accused of sorcery. Sorcery? You don't want to be doing the sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> Not the sorcery. No, you don't want to do the sorcery, the sorcery, the black magic, any of that. <laughs> Dee's personal library at his home at Mortlake uh, impressed and surpassed the collection of universities, and Mortlake itself became a center for intellectuals to seek knowledge. Mortlake. You know your house is something when it has a name and it is known across the land. Let's go to Mortlake. The library. Books. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm gonna D. go read some books at Mortlake, bro. Yeah, D had some books. Like, let's see here. Uh, D pleaded with Mary to establish a national library in 1556, but she shut his ass down. What it says here, the figures are that D spent the equivalent of over a million dollars on his book collection, which definitely explains his debt problem. And for more perspective, uh, it said that Cambridge College possessed 451 books, Oxford 379 books, while D himself at Mortlake had over 2,000 books and 200 manuscripts. Yeah, like this is this is a serious library. The fortress of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, it's a serious. The mage fortress of knowledge. More. <laughs> the fortress of magic. So in May of 1558, Mary's health began to decline, and she eventually passed on November 17th of the same year. And Elizabeth jumped right in, and she had already employed Dee to cast those charts, which got him in trouble. And she she knew he was intelligent. And they had a co uh, they had a pre-existing relationship, so he was too valuable to dismiss, and she didn't want anyone else to get their hands on D either because she knew that he had some he had some knowledge. Now Elizabeth 
Elizabeth couldn't be any more of a polar opposite to Mary, could she? Like, she was a big reformer, like, held pretty liberal views, wasn't nearly as much of a tyrant towards the Protestants and all that. No, she was she was very open-minded. She she was interested in an alchemy herself, and that's really why her and D kicked it off. She just really wanted to pick his brain. Yeah. She was very well-read herself, probably even on equal footing, or maybe even more so than D. Like, there's a source that says um, she read more Greek in one day than most monks read Latin in a week. Dang. Damn. Yeah. So she's. Elizabeth is definitely on Dee's uh, intellectual level, and that's really the basis of their relationship. Because Dee is considered one of the most intelligent men in England, and just his library alone is valuable. Like just to do, like you see, he he uh, well over doubles the the output of both colleges. One man doubling the output of entire institutions. Yeah, and. Now, Dee was considered an asset by Elizabeth, but like Agrippa, and it seems to be a running theme, he wasn't paid like an asset. And this is where they started to poke and prod and bring up his, the superstitions associated with his past, his, uh, his little stage trick during college. In February of 1563, D came upon a copy of Trithmius's Steganographia, which is a grimoire said to be able to conjure demons and angels. Now, this D was on the road at this point, uh, studying abroad because, and of course, some say working as a spy for Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm sure he studied abroad or two. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't being paid, and you know everybody was throwing shit at him, telling, saying that he was a black magician. You confessed to your crimes at the Tower of London. You uh, you made that fucking beetle appear on stage. How the fuck did you do that? Everybody Don't remember that? that beetle. Don't forget the beetle. Don't forget that beetle. Y'all remember that beetle this man made? So at this point, D's on the road, and this this uh, grimoire here, the Steganographia by Trithmius, is, he's really into this. And he's at the, the home of, an, of a uh, Hungarian nobleman, and before he leaves, he hand copies his own copy. Because back in the day, everyone was a... That's the only way you could take things with you. Right. <laughs> he wasn't going to let you borrow it. <laughs> right. Nothing that valuable. Uh-oh. Rates so of you... arthritis had to have gone through the roof back then. Damn. <laughs> Oof. People were more concerned about those fine art skills. Yeah, but... Oof. Yeah. The funny thing is, this points to his uh, spycraft. The only reason D was interested in some of the spells in this book were because they allowed long-distance communication between spirits, and he was thinking maybe he could get messages back to England faster. I wonder if uh, the Soviet Russian government and the U.S. governments read John D. during the Cold War. Because we have a, <clears throat> excuse me, like documented instances of our government and the Soviet government like believing in, you know, long distance astral communication. And it's just remote crazy viewing. that this ties in. Yeah. Yeah, remote viewing. Uh, definitely a proven to. thing. That's definitely a story for another day. You got to <laughs> look forward to that. Yeah. Coming soon. 
Now, Dee's newfound interest in alchemy in the Kabbalah led to the production of the Monus Hieroglyphica, which Dee addressed to Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II, which you may recognize Maximilian I from the first episode. This is his grandson. Long story short, they hated the book, <laughs> and he had to go back to England. Now, Elizabeth, unlike her predecessor, like we said before, she definitely had more of an open mind and had an acceptance and interest in alchemy, which unfortunately for Dee led to many magical suitors at her doors in his absence. And when he returns from his travels, yeah, he finds that the competition has taken over his duties and his reputation as a black magician and conjurer did little to raise his favor and it, his reputation was too damaged to be salvaged at that point. Nobody was going to like this guy. No, they, and you know, he hasn't been there to defend himself for quite some time. So, you know, they've just been shitting on him the whole time behind his back. <laughs> Couldn't defend himself. Don't forget that beetle. He, Don't forget that how, beetle. You see how he made that fucking beetle fly? <laughs> this fucking nerd. Look at <laughs> this guy. Hey, he wasn't, he might not be doing that now, but if he was doing it then, he can surely do it again. <laughs> I can hear him now. <laughs> While the cat's away, the mice will play. In the years following, Dee sought work in the alchemical and magical fields while consulting on optics and navigation, which uh, all of his work on navigation and op- optics to uh, Elizabeth and would use to conquer the world, essentially. And John Dee himself coined the British Empire, but they had already gotten the information they needed out of Dee. They didn't need him. They already had his ideas. So... That's not, he's not important anymore. This guy's crazy. Uh, don't forget the beetle. You, uh, want to let the people know, like, where D allegedly got the term British Empire? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, everyone says that, you know, John D came up with it, but they don't tell you where John D says that he got it from because John D says that, well, Ed, Edward Kelly says that the angel. Uriel, the angel Uriel, gave them the term British Empire. So, by association, that's an angelic term. <laughs> angel, son. Now, just also, just so people know that back then, angels had a completely different form. Yeah, this isn't, uh, this isn't halos and wings here. Or clean people, period. <laughs> With wings flying, with with robes of just pure light. This is Old Testament wrath. This is pure, this is pre-clean white angels. This is dirty terror. This is shit we cannot comprehend as humans or our brains will fry. This is... This is tentacles. This is eyes. Tongue. This is some Lovecraft shit. The unnameable. Exactly, that's what it is. Okay, so by 1579, Dee's definitely getting more serious and trying, trying to explore the occult. He's already starting to use scryers to make up for what he calls his uh, lack of psychic ability. Says he's psychically dense. You know, he's, he's a practical guy. You know, he deals with numbers. He, he, can't, he can't trance out and do some drugs, you know. He can't get loose. His mind is too sharp to be dull. <laughs> In June of the same year, Matthew and Bartholomew Hickman were sent to John D. by D's. Uh, well, D essentially had a talent scout that was still speaking with him at Elizabeth's court, whose his name was Sir Christopher Hatton. 
and so D sent him. Uh, well, sorry, uh, Hatton sent D these two guys, and he was not impressed at all. Just Dis- dismissed them nearly immediately. These guys were retarded. <laughs> <laughs> these guys didn't have nothing for him. So no. Christopher Christopher Hatton comes up to D, and he's like, D, bro, I got these two dudes. They're named Hickman. They're great, bro. I'm, I'm telling you, bro. You got to give them a chance. They're real cool guys. <laughs> and at the end of the day, D's just like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. These guys were trash. These guys were trash. To say the very least. However, on March 8, 1582, D would come face to face with one Edward Talbot, alias Edward Kelly. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> The man. He writes that the skies over Mortlake turned blood red upon Kelly's arrival. This is going to bring us to the meat of the episode, our deep dive into the Enochian sessions of John D. and Edward Kelly. Eddie. Eddie Kells. Eddie Kelly. <laughs> Smelly Eddie Kelly. This <laughs> dirty boy off the streets. <laughs> Eddie Kelly. <laughs> now, before we go further, we got to give you a bit of a bit of backstory on the enigmatic Edward Kelly, Tell born me. August first, fifteen fifty-five. As D states, the sky turned red the night Kelly shows up to Mortlake. It's clear that Kelly got into quite a bit of trouble before he begins his work with D, as his ears are cropped when he shows up for forgery. He wears a cap to hide this deformity because, you know, it, your ears are cropped, you look weird, and then you're just walking around. You don't want people to know that your ears are cropped because now they know that you've done something wrong and you look weird. So outside of his crimes, Kelly is also an alcoholic and accused of practicing Goetia, the art of summoning demons. Uh, stuff. This is This is definitely not good. In a time where Kabbalah and Hermeticism are uh, walking the line, go in Goetia, you're just straight up. Well, yeah, I'm just talking to some demons. You're just over there, like having a like brunch with Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, this uh, Kelly and D seem to make quite the pairing. But regardless of his rough edges, Kelly manages to impress D with his quote-unquote, magical abilities, at least, at least much more so than Matthew and Bartholomew. This guy had the Jews. Oh, yeah, he had something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure he had a lot of you things. Know? Alcoholism. <laughs> I know some magic, John. I'm going to make this entire fifth of vodka disappear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet he did. Now, according to the diary of the late Dr. D, Kelly and D would lock themselves inside of D's study while Kelly would attempt to enter an altered state of consciousness through trance or drugs. Or drugs. This guy was a hoodlum already. Yeah, he's a hoodlum. You're going to see why later. (laughs) You know, it's really not all that hard to imagine why people back then were freaked out by these guys. Like, just reading about them now, I'm just like, God damn, these guys are some degenerates. (laughs) Jesus Christ. I mean, just the sheer amount of books this guy has would freak most people out. They're like, Jesus Christ. Oh, wow, Kelly's tripping balls. Uh, 
D's in the corner praying his ass off. Heavy prayer, like groveling <laughs> at angels. Just saying, please, we're not worthy. We're straight at Wayne's world. So over the next seven years, this is when the uh, yeah they do, yeah they do this for seven years. They just uh, D's over there in the corner praying, and Kelly's Kelly's tripping. Kelly's takes... learning. Kelly's talking to angels. <laughs> it's D's world. It's D's world. Party time. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So over the next seven years, the Enochian system is delivered. Louvre, in his book, describes the tablet constructed by D. and Kelly as a complex circuit board. The spirits or angels contacted the duo to inform them that the grimoires that Kelly and D. were presenting to the spirits were but crude attempts at real magic. Now, some of these grimoires that they brought to the table were uh, the Book of Soya and Liber Geratus. Now... The Book of Soya is was thought to be lost until about 1994, when they found two copies in uh, libraries. Kind of, I guess, uh, two different libraries. They were similar, but they weren't the same. Um, for example, one of the chapters in one, it is about. 65 pages and in the other it is uh it's in a summary of two pages so it was a little different but it had similar things in it it had the same points but right it was enough to be different and they also had different titles i'm not gonna butcher them though <laughs> i don't blame you i don't blame you and uh, the Libra Geratus was supposedly written by Honorus of Thebes, and that he's a mythical figure who supposedly re- lived in the, during the Middle Ages, and he's based, he's a legend in alchemy, just similar to someone like Hermes. Honorus is also credited in the works of Agrippa and Trithemius. And uh, to put that in modern terms, the angels were basically telling them that the grimoires that they were trying to use for magic for connection to the divine were dial up in the Enochian system that they were trying to get them to decipher and understand was the broadband they were looking for. This was the Google fiber. This was the direct download. This was the high speed 5g. This is a strong, this is what you need. Strong drugs. And judging from everything I'm reading, this scrambled their brains about as much as 5G does, too. <laughs> Let's keep the trees, everybody. Uh, they are the thing that's going to help us dilute the signals. 5G is real. <laughs> now, you may be asking yourself, who or what are these angels? Right, D and Kelly are communicating with. Or, are, or is this all bullshit? <laughs> My well, fear. You you might be asking yourself that. I like how you qualified it. You <laughs> might be asking yourself, is this all bullshit? <laughs> now to D and Kelly, it's it's D and Kelly make it clear what they believe these entities to be. These are the, like we said earlier, these are the angels of the Old Testament filled with wrath and promises of hellfire and brimstone for those who do not serve. These are not nice. These, these aren't answering your prayers. They're giving you, this is the info, you do it, or go fuck yourself. These are the, thir- 
These are the 13 horns and a thousand jaws that breathe. <laughs> no These halos, are not no wings. They're not from here. I'm not going to say it, though, gentlemen. Right. Not going to say it. Now, Lou did make an interesting point when he was uh, speaking on the context of the images that uh, Dean Kelly said that they saw. Uh, Dean Kelly's nervous systems did not contain 21st century science fiction metaphors to descri- describe what they saw. They contained only biblical metaphors, which brings me to my theory. We're talking aliens. Exactly. Yep. Bingo. That's my answer. Say? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? You idiots. You're damn straight. <laughs> These it's guys like were from here. They came from the skies again. Tentacles. <laughs> they had eyes. They were not humanoid <laughs> shapes. <laughs> They're inter- interdimensional beings. <laughs> interdimensional. <laughs> now, 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 now you see, you guys, what happened back then was that uh, John D. and Edward Kelly, they were breaking the conditioning, they were destroying the globalists back in the day. <laughs> they were giving the globalists a taste of their own medicine by forging gold and all this, and I'm done. It's cool. We love you, yeah, Alex. At first, I was like, is he about to go into Alex Jones, or is he doing the, the narrator from the little intro movie in Jurassic Park? Dinosaurs. <laughs> now dinosaurs uh, in amber. I don't remember the, the. I just remember how that voice. That's what I thought you were trying to do at first. Oh no! But you know how I am with accents. <laughs> <laughs> now during the sessions with the angels, Kelly's past of black magic come back comes back to haunt him. Hey, don't remember. Don't forget. Yeah, don't forget. He came into town already practicing Goetia's. Goetia's. Goatius. <laughs> Yo, Edward, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing some Goatius. <laughs> so the whole time they're trying to talk to these quote-unquote angels, which are, you know, I got an, here's an easy explanation. They're just a different kind of alien. They're mad at these other aliens that we call demons. Right. And they don't want Edward Kelly talking to those aliens. Because in Christianity... If it's not angels, it's demons. Right. This is the only this is the only way they can frame this for their minds, so they're not completely fried right now. Well, they are probably completely fried because they haven't broken this, the condition. Look, this is either bullshit or aliens. Okay? <laughs> There's no gray area here. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe it's aliens. Now we're getting into Justin's belief system. <laughs> Now, Kelly was still practicing Go- Goetia, unbeknownst to Dee, but not, however, to the Enochian entities. According to Dee, this is the reason they were picking up cross-speak and why the sessions seemed to be progressing more slowly. Despite the droning of the demons, however, Kelly telepathically transcribed volume after vo- volume of the Enochian quote-unquote language. He was, getting, he was picking up chatter from both sides of the fence, though. Yeah, so the angels are trying to whisper the secrets, the secrets into their ear, and all the while the demons are in the corner, like, "Your mother's a whore." <laughs> yeah. So he would have. Uh, so while he's tranced out, he's knee deep in a noki, and then all of a sudden he looks down and he's got a dick pic on his uh, drone. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> on his table there. <laughs> and uh, that's a true story. 
And this would lead to the beginning of a nomadic lifestyle for Dee and Kelly. And all the while, Dee's keeping meticulous notes on their scrying sessions in his diaries. Sidebar, in these travels, uh, they traveled to Prague and held court with Stephen Bathory and Emperor Rudolph II and attempted to gain favor. Yeah, that Bathory, you know, grandfather of Elizabeth Bathory, that bitch. The connections run deep. Yeah, they're all, they're everywhere. And they were attempting to gain favor in their courts, but the rulers feared that Dee and Kelly were spies for the English. They would they were, be correct. They were right. <laughs> it's not officially stating here, but we're picking up what he's throwing down. Oh, yeah. We're seeing what he's watching out over there because Code Guy here sending those messages back. Now, Did here's he where things fear? get... Scummy. 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 In 1587, Edward Kelly, half the age of John D, informed the aging alchemist that the angel Uriel, Digbag, had instructed him that they should share in all of their possessions, including John D's wife. Oh, hell no. Of course. <laughs> always comes back to this. Oh, yeah. Edward Kelly, you son of a bitch. Eddie Kelly, you sleaze. Eddie bag. Kells. Smitty Eddie, Eddie Kells strikes again. <laughs> you pointy eared fuck. Or lack thereof. <laughs> now that we know all this and the Bathory connections, like it's not hard for me to imagine why Elizabeth Bathory got such a bad rep. You know, that family, they converse with the people who trip balls and talk to demons and fuck each other's wives. <laughs> like motherfucking summoning beetles. <laughs> Have you seen his library, though? Dude's smart. <laughs> he knows a lot. We can go there. Now, of course, because the angel said so, the uh, obliged. Ah, he's one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of them. At this point in their lives, uh, when they're visiting these courts, Kelly is actually held at higher regard because he w- he has no problem lying to a motherfucker. So if, if someone's asking him, hey, can you make us gold with your alchemy? Of course I can. How much do you need? I can have it tomorrow. Hey, Kelly. And D is offering enlightenment and uh, a sense of purpose. And no one wants any of that shit. Not offering you shit he does not have. <laughs> It's a tale as old as time. Fuck you, get my money. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're running a hustle like that and nobody's caught you yet, good on you, mate. But hey, I mean, you gotta you gotta get it how you live. But they will come. And they lived amongst the shit. <laughs> In 1589, D returned to England and Kelly went on to serve in the court of Emperor Rudolph II. And just a few months later, Dee's wife gave birth to a son. Some speculate it could have been Kelly's. Yeah. I'm betting so. I am that, that's a that's a borderline. That's as close to a certainty as we're gonna get. <laughs> and he is the father. John D. on Maury, just tripping balls over in the corner. <laughs> Maury's having to call security, sir. Sir, you can't do those drugs here. He can't cast those spells over there. I'm just praying. He can't do magic. He doesn't do magic. He's a logical man. Hashtag logic. For a time, Kelly would, uh, the, 
the funny thing is, for a time, Kelly would actually prosper in the court of Rudolph II because he was able to bullshit long enough to get some money, get some land, and he was actually knighted. So we should be. This is Sir Edward Kelly here. Sir, Sir, Sir Eddie Kells. Sir Eddie Kells. <laughs> <laughs> get him, Eddie! Sir but Eddie. his Respect. fortunes would soon sour once the emperor caught on to his game. So he attempted to flee without producing the promised gold with his alchemical abilities. He was caught and jailed. Somehow he convinced them to let him out again so he could really do it this time. He's really going to do it. Then he got paid. He ran again. They caught him again. On solo style. (laughs) (laughs) Then he escapes and he falls out of a window, breaks his leg, dies from the injuries. Damn. Not on solo style. Yeah, gold can't fix that. Sorry for that infection, son. As for John D., he returned to Mortlake to find much of his library plundered. Yeah, we know that he continued in his efforts in contacting the Enochian entities via a new scryer for 10 years or so after he split from Kelly. Good on him. He moved on quick. Or lost to the flames of... Yep, right. These diary entries are lost to the flames of time and... Dr. D died at his home in 1609 at the age of 81. And it was not until the remnants of the diary crossed the disk of antiquarian Elias Ashmole that the Enochian enchantments saw the light of day. Antiquarian. Antiquarian. Fellow antiquarian. Oh, yeah, we're antiquarians. We're antiquarians. So, my fellow (laughs) Quarians, final thoughts on John D. I think uh, he did a good job at getting to where he wanted to go in life, at least where he tried. He got as far as they would let him go. But I would say he was a little bit more honest than his mate, Eddie Kelly. Uh, (laughs) Eddie Kelly, he was obviously a better con man, but... He, I think they made a good team. Old Edward Kelly, he was the guy doing the dirty stuff, and old D got the man inside. Wink. Yeah, he kind of brought a scientific approach to things. He was at least he gave him some kind of clout. You know, it's like, well, this guy's nuts, but Lisa, Lisa John D's not a complete. Doctor yeah. D knows what he's doing. Yeah, I think he was ridiculously ahead of his time in a lot of stuff, for better or worse. Um. You know, mathematics, cuckoldry, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. He was definitely paving, paving the way. Yeah, like I said, for better or worse. And uh, <laughs> he also, something we didn't touch on, he also wrote the vast majority of his stuff in English because he wanted everybody to be able to read it. So he wasn't some uppity snob about it you know yes i must write this in greek because i know how to well i think that's gonna wrap it up for this week's episode of uh, monsters madness and magic i'm justin i'm david i'm jason and tune in next week for more crazy shit yeah brett brett brett